All right, open your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're in verses 19 and 20 this morning as we continue to examine Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This was a real sermon, a single sermon that the Lord gave at a certain location, but it probably was uh, something that He talked about in many, many different settings over the three and a half years of His ministry. Uh, These are the key principles of uh, His teaching and what He came to do and accomplish and to show us. So, Matthew 5.19 says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus fulfilled God's law in every area of his own life. Uh, We're told in Galatians chapter 4 that he fulfilled it in his birth because he was made under the law. He came as a a Jewish, uh, you know, baby, uh, God and man, but but, uh, so the law was binding upon him as a human being. Every prescribed ritual for a Jewish boy was performed on him by his parents. He fulfilled the law in his life for nobody was ever able to accuse him of sin. And while he did not submit to the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, he always did what God commanded in the law. And uh, the father was well pleased with his son. Uh, Jesus also fulfilled the law in his teaching. It was this that brought him into conflict with the religious leaders. He brought people back to God's word and what it really said. He opened the word to them in a new and living way. They had become accustomed more to the letter of the law and not to the grace of life. But it was in his death and resurrection that he especially fulfilled the law. He bore the curse of the law, we're told, fulfilling all the Old Testament types and ceremonies so that they no longer are required of the people of God. He set aside the Old Covenant and brought with him the New Covenant. When Jesus died, you remember we're told in Hebrews that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which symbolized the opening of a whole new way to God. That veil... I think six. I think it was six inches thick, um, impossible to tear. So you know, it's like a phone book kind of a thing. You know, maybe the power team could tear that thing up, but <clears throat> God had to reach down from heaven. He tore that thing open. I wonder how long they left it that way. I mean, that's like a real temple emergency, you know, and and uh, get in there with their sewing needles and stuff. But uh, he broke down. Uh, besides that, physical. Uh, uh, aspect uh, spiritually he broke down the wall that separated Jews and Gentiles and he made one body of believers and because the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ we no longer need temples made with hands or religious rituals and so uh, with that as a background we look at this and Jesus is nevertheless saying that we don't want to break the commandments uh, and we want to teach them so how do we do that We do it by yielding to the Holy Spirit and allowing Him to work in our lives. The Holy Spirit enables us to experience the righteousness of the law in our daily life. doesn't mean that we'll ever live sinlessly perfect lives, but it does mean that Christ lives out His life through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are denominations and have been in the past that teach at least the possibility of sinless perfection in this life, but it's, it's impossible, obviously, because we always have... Uh, the flesh to contend with. 
uh, and it's been said poetically that we'll never be sinless, but we should sin less, and uh, hopefully that will be our experience. Now, it's important we understand all of this before we hear Jesus say what he said in verse 19 about uh, whoever breaks the least commandment. The mention of commandments immediately takes our thoughts to the Ten Commandments, and that's, that's okay because they are a kind of summary of the whole law that you read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and Exodus. But Jesus was not saying we should live by the law as a set of rules and regulations. He was saying, as we'll see uh, in verse 20 and following, that you can't do that even if you desire to do that. No one can do that. He, he was the only one who could do that and did. He was saying that the law can be internalized and that we can both live by it for ourselves and teach it to others as a byproduct of being in a living, personal relationship with him. I've often used the imperfect illustration of marriage and adultery, and it's the best thing I can come up with so far. Uh, if you are happily married and deeply in love, no one has to tell you to not commit adultery. Uh, you don't have to write it on your doorposts. You don't have to have it on the frontlets of your forehead or on your arm. I mean, you don't, you don't have to go through life you know, reminding yourself that you shouldn't be committing adultery uh, every few minutes by memorizing you know, the, the commandments and all of that. Uh, you don't stay faithful to your wife as a result of your efforts to keep a rule or because of the consequences of breaking it. You remain faithful because of love and because of the greater relationship itself. And so your motivation is internal, it's not external, it, and it has to do with that relationship. It's like that in your relationship with the Lord. If you are happily engaged to Him as a Christian and you remain deeply in love, no one has to tell you to keep the law. You don't stay faithful to Jesus as a result of efforts to keep rules or because of the consequences of breaking them. You remain faithful because of love because you have a greater relationship and therefore your motivation is internal and not external. It's a little bit hard to explain, I think. It's easy to understand, hard to explain, uh, because we do have a tendency to want to externalize our relationship with God and measure it according to whatever external standards we believe in or our group is teaching. Uh, and even at a, I think, a church like ours, which is a casual, serious but casual church that doesn't have a lot of mandates, uh, you know, and, and things. I still think people have a natural tendency to look around at others and see what they're doing or not doing and measure their spiritual progress by that. Uh, it's an inevitable uh, part of, of the, you know, human experience. Some of that's okay. I mean, Paul the Apostle said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so there are examples. Uh, but I think what we do sometimes is we look and, and we gauge how spiritual a person is on the wrong external markers. And, and so we want to have this. This is an internal relationship we have with the Lord uh, that we need to spend time with Him working on. <clears throat> so the bottom line here is that you do need to be righteous in order to have a relationship with God. The Jews thought that they were righteous and they thought they knew what that meant and they thought they knew who among them was righteous. Jesus' hearers would automatically think of the scribes and Pharisees as the guys who were the best at keeping the law and therefore the most righteous. They would think that Jesus was describing the precise legal behavior of those guys. Um, as I've pointed out uh, as an illustration, they would even tithe the smallest leaves of their 
seeds and uh, seasonings. Next time you're putting oregano on something, think about pouring out that packet of oregano and separating it into 90% and 10% and then setting aside that 10% for the Lord. Uh, you know, that, that, is, that is what the external keeping of the law is all about. It's, it's counting leaves of oregano. Uh, and these guys did have a kind of righteousness, but it was a self-righteousness. It was an outward, external righteousness. You know this. And so then Jesus immediately said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that kind of righteousness, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Telling the crowd that their righteousness must exceed that of these supposed religious giants would, would startle them. Without a further explanation, it would destroy the common man who could never hope to get to heaven because he could never get to the level of the scribe or the Pharisee, let alone beyond. Uh, back when I was stuck in the, sort of, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, obviously not very spiritual, not really thinking about God very much, but there's a general tendency to think of a priest or a nun as a person so much more spiritual than you that you could never achieve that. There was just, I mean, it just, that's the nature of a priesthood or a nunnery, uh, is that these people have made a decision that their lives are going to count for God. They're going to live for God, renounce things like marriage and sex and money and not alcohol, but uh, other things. <laughs> I mean, Father O'Toole, he smoked and drank, you know, but uh, anyway, yeah, but he renounced a bunch of other things, and, and I mean, really, the, the idea, I mean, these guys are spiritual, and you are not, and, and, and so they had a standard of righteousness, so much so that you would tell them your sins, I mean, they, you know, I, and you, it was astonishing to think that they might have to tell somebody their sins, I mean, I, I don't know that they even did, I, I'm, you know, but... Uh, and so that's the idea. And so this is, the, this is what was going on in the Jewish community. There was scribes and Pharisees and then there was everybody else. And everybody else didn't want to count their leaves of oregano. Uh, you know, they, they just didn't have that drive to be that spiritual and that righteous. And, and so it was uh, very interesting when Jesus said, that's a standard of righteousness for sure and you have to exceed that in order to go to heaven. So they're not going to heaven and therefore I guess I'm not either because I, you know, I don't do what they do. Uh, so this was stunning and it would rivet everyone's attention. There was no way that any form of outward righteousness could exceed that of these men. Uh, either no one could gain entrance into God's kingdom or there must be another way to understand the righteousness God requires. And I think this would be the conclusion that anyone would come to. Uh, if, if you had any spiritual discernment and you were in the Catholic Church again, and they said, you know, Gene, your righteousness must exceed that of a priest, then either no one can go to heaven or there must be another righteousness that I don't know anything about. Those are, those are I don't know if they're the only conclusions, but they're the two possible conclusions that I can come up with. And we already know and we'll see in Jesus' explanation that there is another way of righteousness. It, the Bible calls it the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and it's really an exchange between the Lord and the person who puts his faith in the Lord. It's best explained in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, Paul the Apostle says, For God made Jesus, um, he, it says for he made him, but it's God making Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us 
that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so it's very simple. Jesus had no sin, but He had tons of righteousness. You had all kinds of sin, and you had no righteousness, or a self-righteousness, which is worse than, than no righteousness, because you think you're godly. It's a, it, yeah, it's a, it's a, it would be anti-righteousness, I guess, in the, in the matter, anti-matter universe. Uh, and so, now you have sin. Why do you have sin? Well, one reason is because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam literally represented the entire human race. And when he decided to sin and disobey God, to disobey God and sin, then sin was, the Bible says, imputed to him. It was as if he had a, a bank account in heaven, because it is an accounting term, and God transferred and deposited sin into his bank account, and there's no way to withdraw it or cancel the transaction. And so now Adam had sin and no righteousness. God provides a way for blood to cover his sin so we can have a relationship with God, but eventually he sends Jesus who has all righteousness and no sin, but he's God and man. He represents us again. And that's why the Bible calls Adam the first man and it calls Jesus the second man or the second Adam. And so Jesus, driven out into the wilderness, uh, sustains the same type or maybe worse temptations than Adam did in the Garden of Eden and uh, passes with flying colors, doesn't disobey God, doesn't sin. Now he becomes the new man, the second man, the second Adam, the progenitor of a new spiritual race of people, all those who will put their faith in him. So when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he imputes to you or gives you his righteousness and God removes the sin. And so that's the transaction. So now when God... Um, you know, you know. Let, let's say all of us have had credit checks. Let's say you're going to buy a, something, and they say, "Well, we're going to check your credit." Uh, they check your credit, and they tell you, "Yeah, you you can buy the house or car or cup of coffee at Starbucks." You know, it's getting to be that expensive. But uh, and it's the same thing. It's it's kind of a funny illustration, but it's like that in heaven. If you're a Christian, God says, "Well, let's check your account." Oh yeah, I see you're full of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's all I see in your account is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So therefore you have that uh, right standing with God. Um, so that's how your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Instead of a self-righteousness, it's a Christ-righteousness. Do we still sin? Yes, but our sin uh, is, is forgiven by God. Um, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, doesn't go into our bank account. We don't, we don't keep making deposits into the account that outweigh our righteousness. And, and this is one reason, uh, well, this is what it means to be justified. God looks at us as if we'd never sinned, and he continues to do that because we're in Jesus Christ. Sin hinders our walk with the Lord. It ruins our lives. Uh, if we let it go long enough, uh, but it doesn't affect our standing of righteousness with the Lord. So practically speaking, we still sin, but day by day as you remain in a position of love with the Lord, His indwelling Spirit empowers you to say yes to obeying God and no to sin. So this brings it back to the practical level. Uh, do we obey the commandments? Not really, but yes, we do. If you love the Lord, you find yourself obeying the commandments because He lives within you. You have His righteousness, His Holy Spirit 
if you yield to him, you're going to do the same things Jesus would do. I, you know, we overdid the what would Jesus do campaign. I mean, it got blown out, you know, once we started doing bracelets and license plate frames and all that. But it'll come back around in another form. But it, it's basically, uh, uh, it's a good, you know, what would Jesus do? You can do what Jesus would do because his spirit and his nature resides in you. You don't always do it, but you can. The key, as I've come to understand it, is to remain obviously in love with the Lord. We know that our love can wax cold. Jesus calls it leaving your first love in uh, the Revelation in chapter 2 where he's writing a letter, dictating a letter to the church at Ephesus. He said, Out, and this is the interesting part, those guys were not backslidden, they weren't in sin, but they had returned to a kind of outward self-righteousness. There's a list of all the great things their church was doing. They were attacking false teachers and they had all this other great stuff going on. But Jesus said, I see the heart and the motivation for it is, is not love. It, it, you're, you're really not in love with me. And again, the, the illustration is the husband-wife. It's the, the wife who sits and says, you don't love me anymore. And the husband who says, I bring... I, I, you know, I work, I bring home a paycheck, I bought you this, I got that for you. They're talking about something different. So the Lord is tapping into that and he's saying, hey, you don't love me anymore. And we would say, I, I, I pastor a church, I'm an elder, I'm a deacon, I go to church, I got up at five in the morning to go to you know, this meeting and stuff. And, and, and he would say, well, yeah, that's great if it's from the right motive, if, if you're really doing it because you love me and you want to walk with me. And so the bottom line for all of us is we have to get alone with the Lord and allow Him to check our hearts. We, you know, we can't even really know our own hearts, the Bible says, so we have to let the Word of God and the Spirit of God search our hearts. And we need to be willing to say to Him, I'm sure from time to time, maybe a lot more often than we do, you know, Lord, I, I see where I'm not really fervently on fire in love with you anymore, the way I once was or, or whatever. Uh, and I want to return to that, you know, and so I need to repent. What is it? And, and then maybe the Lord will show you, you know, what it is that you're doing or not doing. And, and that's fine. Uh, you know, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and again, we need to do that more often because we do always have a tendency to think we're doing better than we are because we judge ourselves on some kind of outward scale. And, and uh, as long as I'm attending, as long as I'm memorizing Scripture, whatever it might be, it just still has to be from the right motive and for the right purpose. And only God knows the heart. He says that His Word can discern between the soul and the spirit. And so we need to read His Word with an open heart, an open mind, open ears, and, and just have the Lord prick our conscience and show us areas that need to be rearranged or changed so that we remain in first love. And so with His help, you and I can do that, repent and return to our first romantic love for the Lord and then continue to live out this righteousness. And so if people say, do you keep the law? You say, I fulfill the law because I'm with Jesus and He fulfilled the law and now I, I don't murder people because I love them the way the Lord loves them. And I don't commit adultery because, you know, I, uh, I love my wife and I love the Lord and He doesn't want me to do that. And, and whatever the Ten Commandments are, it, you do them because of love, not because you have to do them. You get to do them and they're, they're a joy. Uh, and remember the Fourth Commandment, you're doing that all the time as you rest in the Lord. You are keeping the Sabbath all the time uh, as a way of, of knowing the Lord. So don't get tripped up on that one and start coming to church on Saturday. We won't be here. So, Amen. Have a good day.